Reverend Doctor, you are welcome. And I think I also want to encourage you, don't look at our numbers. Look at the hearts. I think the hearts are prepared to receive the word. And because of that, allow me to welcome you and give us your first presentation. incredible honor to be with you again. I'm going to set these over here, if that's okay. You can be seated. Uh, some of you I recognize from last year. I recognize you. Uh, who else remembers me from last year? Okay, one, two. Okay, a few of you. All right. Um, not because I need the recognition, but because it's just, it's a joy to be back with you all um, Again, Zambia, my third time to Africa, second time in Zambia. And I just have to say, I love your country. I love Zambia very, very much. In fact, on my way back home last year, I was already figuring out a way to get back here. <laughs> and so by God's grace, the door has been opened. God has, has led me here, and, and I'm just, I'm privileged, I'm honored um, to spend more time with you. So as uh, the chaplain had said, my name is Jason, also Pastor Mutale. That is my Zambian name. Uh, I hope, I think it means like strength or strong, but I'm afraid it's a joke. Maybe it means something else. I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I want you to open your Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. My hope for this conference is that you will be challenged, and by challenged, I mean I want to make your brain hurt, all right? I want to make your brain hurt. I did not come to uh, flatter you. I did not come to uh, dumb the, the, the gospel down or water the gospel down. I came to challenge you. To, to stimulate your brain, your mind, because I believe very much that what the Christian gospel offers to the world is a battle for the mind of men and women and children. Um, and I join you in praying for South Africa, especially. Uh, Reverend Charles, he's a missionary friend of mine in South Africa, and he has given me some sort of uh, input on what's been happening there, and it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, there's a lot of lawlessness. There's a lot of hatred, a lot of racism, things that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I join you in praying for them, uh, and certainly you are all in my, in my prayers as well as you navigate that tricky situation. And certainly later, if you'd like, we can, we can talk more about that. Um, tonight I want to talk about the absolute personality the absolute personality. That's the title of this evening's lecture, the absolute personality. Matthew chapter 28, if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to read it real quick, and then we will pray, and then we will get started. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, all authority, correct? You, is your Bible say all authority or some authority? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus, our Lord, speaking. He has all authority where? In heaven 
and on the earth. Don't miss that part, on the earth. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And did Jesus stop there? No, he said, and teaching Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Not everything I've suggested. Not everything that I think may or may not work in society. No, everything that I have commanded you. Now think back to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, I did not, do not think, menomosete in Greek, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to what? Fulfill them. Pleruo is the word. To fulfill. To bring to its appointed purpose. Its appointed consummation. Jesus didn't come to set aside the law of God. He didn't set aside the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. Bringing it to its final consummation. Its final purpose. And remember, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time we have this evening to open up your word and find within it treasures of unending joy. I ask and pray that we would learn the ethics of your law word so that we can be better equipped to carry about and carry out the dominion mandate, the great commission of discipling the nations. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray, and it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So for the next few days, we are going to be exploring different aspects of the Great Commission found here in Matthew 28. So each night, we are going to look at a particular word or a particular phrase, and then we're going to pull out from it a lot of different applications, okay? So it's important for you to understand what I'm saying, all right? Uh, and, and also, you need to know what I'm not saying. Sometimes that's helpful in communication, which means that, of course, if you have any questions for me afterwards, we'll do a little time of question and answer. You can write those questions down um, as soon as you think of them, because I want to be able to address them. And so rem remember to, to, uh, to do that for later. Uh, so it's important for you to grasp what I'm teaching. Like I said earlier, I'm going to stretch your brain. You may walk out of here with a headache. That's okay. <laughs> Because I want, I want you to, to get some of these concepts. Um, I didn't fly 21 hours to confuse you, okay? And, and I'm still having a hard time adjusting. Last year, the jet lag didn't bother me. This year, I'm, I'm feeling a little out of sorts, but that's okay. When we explore the greatness of the Great Commission, what we're really talking about is God's plan to heal the nations. God's plan to heal the nations, Sin has corrupted man's nature and twisted man's ambition. Man is given the dominion mandate. He has ambition. He has drive in his soul. But sin corrupts that drive. Look no further than what's happening in South Africa or Zimbabwe for that matter. And this comprehensive wreckage, what we call sin, can only be solved by the comprehensive gospel. So it is the kingdom of God and only the kingdom of God that can heal nations. Amen? Amen? Only the kingdom of God can accomplish the healing of the nations. 
Now, it's important for us to consider the nature of this healing. And again, we're going to spend some time looking at the various ways the gospel brings healing to nations throughout our time together. But for tonight, I want to focus on one aspect of the healing that we don't often consider. And that is the healing of man's thinking. The healing of man's mind. The healing of men and women in their minds. What they think about the world, what they think about God, what they think about all of it. The gospel of the kingdom of God restores your mind to proper function so that you can think correctly. When Adam and Eve, you recall, they sinned in the garden, their thinking became corrupted. Their thinking came corrupted. Remember, Eve saw that it was a delight to the eyes, that it would make one wise. Her mind became twisted. And when they partook, their mind became fallen. Now, who in here is a world history lover? You like studying world history? Anyone? No one. That's a problem. We're going to have to deal with that. <laughs> See, contrary to the Enlightenment, which, if you are familiar with the Enlightenment, um, study um, European history. We're talking about the movement of man being this idea, the reason of man. This is from the 1700s on, all right? The Enlightenment elevated man's reason. Uh, in other words, the belief that man's mind is ethically pure. It's neutral from things pertaining to God if God exists or he doesn't exist. Um, those of the Enlightenment believed that man's mind was uncorrupted and it was not tainted by sin, which we know the Bible says that it is. That's why Paul says you need to do what with your mind? Renew it. See, the Bible declares that the whole of man's being was poisoned by sin, including his thoughts. Including his thoughts. Not everyone today in their mind had pure thoughts all day. Even the Christian who professes Christ is baptized in his name in the triune Godhead. Not all of us have had a pure mind. See, man's reason and thought processes did not go unscathed by our sin against God. This is why at its root, the Enlightenment is philosophically untenable. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I tell you from experience, I live 40 miles West, I don't know what that is in kilometers, I'm sorry. We don't do kilometers. <laughs> there you go. West of Washington, D.C., we call it Babylon. Okay? And uh, the President Trump, we call him Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> and we pray for him. <laughs> but I live um, 40 miles outside of Washington, D.C., and I visit colleges. We do street evangelism, street preaching. We minister to people at abortion clinics who go to kill their baby. We, we do a lot of these work. And I will tell you firsthand that the Enlightenment philosophy that was prevalent 400 years ago, 300 years ago, is still with us today. Man believes in his mind that he is a god and that he can do whatever he wants with himself. However, when Christ died for your sin, one of the sins that he died for was wrong thinking. Okay? He died for wrong thinking. 
Christ redeems your soul, no doubt. Amen to that. But he also redeems your faulty thinking. We are all human beings made in the image of God, and part of that image of God is how we reflect God in our thinking. Do we think like God thinks? Within reason, we know we can't know everything. We don't know um, the beginning and the end of time. We don't understand in that capacity, but are we thinking God's thoughts after him? Are you in the word thinking God's thoughts after him? That's the question. See, we are whole beings and whole bodies. We have a mind, we have heart, we have soul, we have flesh. And we think and we feel. And as a result of God's creative handiwork, we are, we exist. You and I are here today. And thank you all for coming. And I have something for you before we leave. So we exist because God exists. So the entirety of our being, the the entirety of our person exists only because God exists. We didn't think our way into existence. See, if you, uh, we can also say it this way. We were created to create. We were produced in order to produce. We were caused in order to cause. This is Christian theology, and Christian theology stands in sharp contrast to non-Christian theology. Now, if you recall, I don't know if you know this name, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but one of the notable thinkers of the Enlightenment period of the 17th century was a French philosopher, and his name was René Descartes. Anyone know that name? René Descartes. Descartes is known for the famous phrase, cogito ergo sum which in Latin means, I think, therefore I am. Now, Cartesian philosophy is centered around these assumptions. I want you to get this because this is prevalent in the Western world. You in Zambia are watching the crumbling of the Western world. America, we have our problems. We have a lot of them. Um, Europe is going through a lot of problems as well. So you... You are a generation that sits before me, and I'm telling you this, you are watching what the Western world abandon God and thus reap the harvest of a terrible fruit. So our being rests on him. And one of the philosophies of Rene Descartes was basically these assumptions. One, he said that essentially truth is self-existent, right? Without any relationship to God. And that's what we call brute facts. You know, in other words, truth is not necessarily something that relies on God for its existence. Now, if you are here and you profess Jesus Christ as Lord, you better say, no, 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 that's not, that is not good. Truth does not exist independently of God. Truth is only defined as in, in, in its existence because of God. And then two, Descartes would tell us our being, our being is what we call ontology, the nature of being, of existence, who you are as a person, as a human being. He says that that's derived not necessarily from God, but from the fact that man is reason. Let me explain. Because man thinks, and in his thinking it has to be true, Otherwise, we're delving into the realm of the absurd, right? 
if, if you don't know that you're here tonight, we have a problem, <laughs> okay? But that's the absurdity of the Western world right now. Well, we don't know anything. Do you know that? Do you know that you don't know anything? I've had these conversations with college students in America. It's frustrating. Well, there's no absolute truth. Well, is that absolutely true? No. So then you're wrong. <laughs> so what? Use your brain. <laughs> so some would say, because of that, man thinks, thus man is. He just exists apart from God. But some would say that God, you know, he's kind of important in the process. Well, others would say, well, maybe God's really not that important. I can think on my own. I don't need God to tell me what to eat for breakfast or lunch. And that only works to some degree. So some would say that. But the underlying problem with this rationalism, we'll call it, is the belief that our thinking is somehow independent of God. If sinful man can somehow rid himself of accountability to God, he is thus free to think whatever he wants. I mean, think about it. If you are not accountable to the God of the universe, you can do whatever you want. The people who are oppressing migrants in South Africa, they believe themselves to be free from any accountability to the God of the universe. That's the only explanation. So if he can think whatever he wants... Well, then he can do whatever he wants. And this type of thinking has infiltrated the minds of many, 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 many people in my nation. And again, as Western culture as a whole, if, if man's mind and his reason is supreme, then man's thinking is free and his existence is free, free from any responsibility, free from any accountability to the God of the universe who created that person. And he can create and he can define his own existence. Let me warn you, do not walk down that path. But the Bible presents something altogether contradictory to this philosophy. The Bible presents to us basically a sharp distinction between the creator God and us, the created men. A sharp distinction. It is not as though we are free to just create magically our own existence, right? elevating our minds above the created order. We are not free. We are not permitted to do so. And you should know that part of the problem today is we have gone back to Greek philosophy of 2,000 years ago, and we think that they were on to something. We think Plato and Socrates and, and these Epimenides and all these other um, thinkers, we think that they had it right. The, the physical is bad. The spiritual is good. The mind, we have to escape passion, ambition. We have to escape the world. So the only way to escape the world is to tame yourself. And then hopefully someday when you die, you'll go on to a better life. That's, that's where my country is at right now. We have gone back to the pagan philosophies of the Greeks. So the Bible says something completely different. We are not free or permitted to create our own existence. Our minds are given to us by God in order to think God's thoughts after him. That's why your mind exists. You are here at a university studying something 
Some of you are scientists, some of you are politicians, future politicians, some of you are going into nursing. I, I don't know what all of you are doing, but you are going into some field of study, and if your mind is not captured by the glory of God, you're not going to do well in those fields. Because it's God who gives you a mind and a passion and an ambition to carry forward the Great Commission in those areas of study. See, our minds must reflect God. The rebellious mind, the rebellious mind wants to, de to declare autonomy. You know what the word autonomy means? He wants to be a law unto himself. That's what the sinful mind, the sanctified mind, the holy mind, the mind who is captured by the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, wants to declare the opposite. He wants to declare theonomy. That is, he wants to be obedient to the law of God, his maker. He wants to be obedient to the law word of God. You, listen, the Bible that you have in your hands is not a manual for what you're supposed to do when you go to heaven someday. So why do we treat it like that? It's a manual for how to live now, to do what Deuteronomy 4 says. Don't add or subtract from the commands of God. Obey them. Don't add to them. Don't sub subtract. Your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, at the root, what we are talking about, we're talking about autonomy, that's self-law, and then we're talking about theonomy, which is God's law. So as we walk through the Great Commission during our time together, we need to be able to identify these opposing worldviews. And my goal, the whole reason I raised money to come over here. No one paid me to come over here. I, I came over here by the graciousness and generosity of many people who helped provide the funds to do so. But I came over here to, to teach you how to do this because I believe it's important. And I believe you are the next generation of people and leaders in this country. And let me tell you, I need, me as an American, I need Zambia to be obedient to the word of God to teach our nation how to do it again, because we've lost it. So some of you are going to need to move to Washington, D.C. and help me start churches there. So I'm, I'm telling you this now. I came all the way. My wife and my three kids are at home missing me. My daughter, poor, my poor daughter, crying herself to sleep because she misses daddy. But I'm going to take her back some cool African stuff, and she'll love it by the grace of God. <laughs> but I came to teach you this. I came to teach you how to identify these opposing worldviews. And I guarantee you, much of what I'm going to say, you've never heard in your life. They're not teaching you that at the university, especially if you're not taking any history courses, which apparently none of you do. We can rectify that. So what I want to do tonight as we begin our time at the Bible conference is to see to us, see to it that all of us are starting from the right foundation, right? No one builds a house starting with the rooftop. Now, if you've seen someone try to do that, you may laugh at them because that's foolishness. No one builds a foundation with the rooftop start, starting there, okay? So houses require a foundation, but we have to be clear from the outset, it's not primarily our doing. Write this verse down, Psalm 127.1. 1. 
You can look it up later. Psalm 127.1 is one of the most underused Bible passages in Scripture, and there are many. It says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The house of your life, the house of your ministry, the house of anything you want to talk about, the house that is your nation, unless the Lord builds it, those who labor do so in vain. You can talk all day about one nation, one Zambia. And hallelujah, I rejoice with you. But if it isn't one nation and one Zambia under the lordship of Jesus Christ, you're not building the right foundation. It's going to fall. The rains are going to come. The winds are going to destroy. It's built on sand, not the rock that is Jesus Christ. So I take this verse to mean that while we are pouring the concrete, laying the footers, right, and using wood and and, and hammers and nails, we are doing so from a motivation that is informed by the glory of God. Your life, you need to understand this, your life that you are building, which is really God building it, you need to swing the hammer, but where'd the hammer come from? He gave it to you. Isn't he good? But the life you're building needs to be motivated by the glory of God. We are not building a house because we want to make our name great. We are not building because we want to be famous, the next rock star, the pop star. We're not building for our own glory. We are laboring in the kingdom of God for the glory of Christ Jesus, which means that the thing that motivates us is God and his word, not man and man's reason. You see the connection? See, when we look at the Great Commission, we find that the Lord Jesus begins his assertion of authority by qualifying the authority with one word. In English, it's three letters, all. All. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, the word all isn't like a secret, fancy Greek word that, you know, only the top scholars and theologians can understand it. In the Greek, the word all, it means all. <laughs> Go figure. You know, you don't have to have five PhDs to figure that out. It just simply means all. All, obviously, can mean a variety of things. I could walk into this room and say, is everyone here? Now, you know I don't mean like everyone on the planet. There's a context there, okay? But here, the meaning is pretty straightforward, okay? The full legislative authority of heaven and earth, all of it rests on Christ. The full legislative authority of heaven and earth doesn't rest in the state house. It doesn't rest in the White House. It doesn't rest in Congress, the Supreme Court of the United States of America, who keeps getting things really wrong. Someone should tell them. <laughs> I'm trying. No, the authority belongs to Jesus Christ. And remember Isaiah 9, 6 promised that the government of the entire universe would rest on the shoulder of this Prince of Peace. You recall the verse. See, Jesus possesses authority, but not just a little portion of authority. It's all of it. So he doesn't have some authority. He has every ounce of authority. It's not as though there's a shortage of authority going around. Jesus has it all. 
The supreme, this supreme unending authority stems from the fact that he is God in the flesh, and while in the flesh, what did he do? He obeyed the law of God perfectly, having stooped low, becoming a man, being tempted like you and I are tempted, living in a world. I don't know how he fasted for 40 days. But he did. See, his obedience to the Father all the way through the cross and resurrection earned him the name that is above all names, Philippians tells us. See, because of his obedience, he was granted something. Okay, think through this. Jesus was granted something. And what was he granted? Well, he was granted a mediatorial kingdom. A kingdom that 1 Corinthians 15 says he will give over to the Father once that kingdom is successful and complete. And this kingdom is where he currently rules and reigns from David's throne in heaven. His resurrection, according to the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, is the enthronement to David's throne. So now it is true that Jesus has all authority and the kind of legislative authority he, he has and possesses is full-on all-encompassing, every single area of life, every crevice of the universe, he has jurisdictional authority. It doesn't say he, he was given authority in heaven and none on the earth. Okay? It's right in your Bibles, as clear as it could ever be. All authority in heaven and on the earth. Jesus is king. Kings have kingdoms. And kingdoms have law and order and jurisdiction. And this jurisdiction, Jesus tells us, includes heaven and earth. It includes the United States of America. It includes Zambia and South Africa. It includes China. See, that which is material... We're talking about his, his claim to authority in all of existence. So that means that which is material or physical and that which is immaterial or spiritual. He has all authority over all of it. All of it belongs to Christ, right? He is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. That's the foundation. His authority. And, and the reason that I want us to understand the comprehensive nature of Christ's authority is because this is the basis for all knowledge. Okay? Now follow with me. This is the basis of all knowledge. This is the foundation of the house that I'm talking about. We've already seen how defunct and messed up rationalism is as it has tried to basically hijack Western culture. Man asserting the superiority of his mind over against God and God's self-revelation. Let me tell you, that's a quick trip to nowhere. Have you ever talked to an unbeliever who is confused? They're not sure. Um, I, you know, in, in conversing with many um, that I get to speak with, oftentimes um, they don't realize that when you reject God, your life is suddenly meaningless. Your life has zero purpose. None. You can try to come up with your own purpose. People do it all the time. I exist for my own happiness. <laughs> really? Are you happy? 
The great Super Bowl football champion Tom Brady has won several Super Bowl rings. He's a billionaire. He said on a radio interview that he's just not enough. He's still unfulfilled. How do you become a household name across the world, one of the best quarterbacks in football history, making millions and millions of dollars? I mean, none of us in this room can fathom that. And he says, I'm still not satisfied. Well, <laughs> hey, Tom, I know the answer. His name is Jesus Christ. See, what we must insist upon is what we can call a Christian theory of knowledge. That is, a presupposition of knowledge that commands us to stand upon the Bible as the Word of God. You know what a presupposition is? It's something you're assuming. You assume something about the world or you, you're, you're presupposing um, something about anything. We have to have a theory of knowledge that starts with the foundation of the Word of God. That's where true knowledge is had. What does Proverbs 1-7 tell us? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? Fools despise wisdom, and it's interchangeable in Proverbs. That's where it starts. See, when Jesus prayed to the Father, if you recall in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. He did not say, your word has some truth in it. Uh, he didn't say, your word may or may not be truth. He said, your word is truth. Okay, that's not unclear. What Jesus asserts is that the foundation of all truth Indeed, the very recipe that produces truth in the world is the Word of God. All right? The Word of God, the self-revelation of God contained in the Holy Bible, the Holy Scriptures. Isn't it amazing that you hold in your lap communication from the heavens? Are you not in awe of that? And you can read it and understand it. It's not as if God gave us some weird language that no one ever uses or has ever used. And, and we're walking around, this is God's word. I don't know what it says, but it's God's word. No, 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 no. God is so gracious as to tell you who he is, who his son is, what his son has done for you, how you can think right, how you can act right, how you can obey his law, how you can become a part of his kingdom now so that in the future kingdom of God, the, the all-encompassing kingdom of God, the new heavens and new earth, you can live with him forever. Is that not amazing? All of this means that the Bible you have in your hand is authoritative on everything that it addresses, and it addresses everything. So let me tell you what the main point is here tonight. If you and I are going to carry on the dominion mandate, which is what we call the Great Commission, if we are going to do that, we are going to have to do so under the authority of Christ and in conjunction with the Holy Scriptures. Okay? My country is trying to do justice and law and order and a whole host of things apart from the authority of God. Let me tell you something. Your country is potentially walking down that road. Marie Stopes in Zambia trying to push for abortion 
in your country. You don't want that. I looked up their information. They are here. They are here in Lusaka. They want free or safe, what they call procedures, for women to tear apart their child in the womb. Go look it up. It's there. It's easy to find. It's on your doorstep. Since 1973, we have killed 65 plus million children in my country. Okay? We do not know what we are doing. Father, forgive them, right? For we don't know what we're doing. We don't know. Because we're trying to do knowledge apart from God. And you can't do it. South Africa can't do it. Look what they're doing. Zimbabwe can't do it. Look what they're doing. China can't do it. Look what they're doing. And we're going to get into that a little more as we go throughout the week, some of those things. But if we're going to carry the Great Commission forward in history, it has to be under the authority of Christ and in conjunction with the authority of the Scriptures. See, we're not going to win the world by acting like the world. You don't win the world by acting like the world. We're not going to combat humanism and the exaltation of man by using the same presuppositions as humanism. You can't do it. See, when the Bible tells us not to repay evil with evil, we should take this to mean not only that we shouldn't use the same tactics as evil, we shouldn't start with the philosophies of evil either. And this requires us to start with God long before starting with the superiority of our mind, our intellect. We think we're smart. We really do. We are so smart, we have pushed God out of our minds. That's what we think. See, the Christian theory of knowledge that I'm referring to also goes by another name. What we, it's a more technical term, and that technical term is what we call presuppositionalism. Presuppositionalism. See, to presuppose is to assume some sort of precondition or coherence or truth, right? Some of you came tonight possibly assuming that this guy isn't going to say anything intelligent. Maybe I shouldn't even come. I hope not. <laughs> but you, you had some precondition. You, you're here. You decided at some point today, or maybe last week, I don't know, to come to, to be here to see what this guy from Virginia near Babylon has to say. Now, for example, talking about presuppositionalism, I do not want to jump off the ledge of a tall building because I'm presupposing that in doing so, I'm going to die. Okay? I'm assuming in that moment that gravity will still continue to remain in effect because God says so, right? And I'm also assuming that the height of the building is a seriously long distance away from the ground and that the laws of physics are still functioning. If I jump over the ledge, I'm going a long way down and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to make it. So I'm assuming things, right? I'm presupposing things that are true. I'm presupposing certain conditions, and thus I'm basing my decisions off of those presuppositions. All right? So don't jump off a building. <laughs> it's not good. Physics is a real thing. It won't end well. See, based on this understanding... It is clear then that no one is exempt from this. No one in the world is exempt from this. 
Presuppositions are inescapable. Everybody has them. Everybody has them. Whether you're talking about relationships with your parents or friends or boyfriend, girlfriend, I don't know, spouse, whatever the situation is, you are assuming certain things about that person. And let me tell you, the quickest way to destroy a marriage is to assume way too much. Because then you're not communicating at all. And then you need to be smacked upside the head and somebody needs to straighten you out. So no one is exempt from this. Every single person on this planet walking and talking right now has presuppositions about the world. We have beliefs about laws of logic. Okay, laws of logic, you can't go to pick and pay and buy a pound of laws of logic, right? You can't do it because laws of logic are immaterial. You can't touch them. Are you familiar with the law of non-contradiction? These are laws of logic that exist because of God. So we have beliefs about the laws of physics. We have beliefs about language. I am speaking to you in the English language, a particularly westernized version. All right? And I'm assuming to some degree that there's a communication that's happening here. You understand. Um, There's assumptions about culture. There's assumptions about theories of knowledge, sources of truth, and so on. So we have assumptions about history. We have assumptions about the continuity of time. You're all assuming that tomorrow you're going to have 24 hours again, right? You didn't, you're not worrying about that tonight. Well, I don't know if I'm going to get another 24 hours tomorrow. Now, some people who struggle with anxiety might struggle with you know, God giving us another day, another breath, another day of mercy, But no one's really worried about it. The sun's going to come up again. You're still going to wake up in Zambia, not China. Thank God. (laughs) See, every person lives in God's world, and the only way to escape God's world is essentially suicide. And that's physically and intellectually. You just, you end it. You end it in your mind. I reject God. I'm living my life my way. See, the proverb says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is what? Death or destruction. A way that seems right in his mind. He thinks this is right. He's rationalized it. He thinks it's a good decision. But it's the Lord who establishes your steps. And even then, I think man faces, you know, man faces God the judge and he consigns souls to eternal hell forever, punishing those who would dare to walk from him, to assume his, that he doesn't exist, to declare their own autonomy. Psalm 139 verse 8 says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You can't escape from the authority of Christ. Are you kidding me? You can't even die in God's world and escape the authority of Christ. Where will you go? See, presuppositions are inescapable because God is inescapable. You cannot run from him. You can try, but you can't. God is, then, the great precondition for all intelligibility. Things only make sense in the world because of God. Everything starts with God. Math only works because God exists. Uh, What is two plus two? Four, right? Did any of you think three? 
Why not? Why don't you assert your own authority and say that 2 plus 2 is 3? Because we would call you a fool. You can't escape it. The truth that science and observation discovers is only this way because God exists. We are simply trying to discover who God is in the world he has made. That's all we're doing. Civil government can only exist correctly and righteously because God has, according to Romans 13, 1, instituted this sphere, this what we can call a covenantal sphere. Every single area of life can only function properly and logically if we understand that God is the absolute, all-conditioning personality. What do I mean by this? Let me explain. The God of Islam, Allah, the God of Islam is impersonal. He's impersonal. He lacks personality. And you know why he lacks personality? Because he is only one. He is only one. Who does Allah have in fellowship in his life? No one else. He's one. He's impersonal. Islam teaches that it's a joke that God could somehow become a man. But that's the foundation of Christian theology, isn't it? Our God, the triune God, the one true God, is three in one. There is unity in the Godhead, and there's diversity. I'm, I'm here. I, I looked it up. I am 7,260 miles away from my family. Wow. On another continent with miles and miles of ocean this is a big planet, and I'm here, and you are my brothers and sisters, and I love you, and I care for you, and, but what is it that unites us despite diversity? I'm from a different country. What is it? What is it who is it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So there's unity and diversity. This is the problem of the one and the many that the Greek philosophers just couldn't figure out. God is what we call equally ultimate. He is He is. Um, plurality in persons. We have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But he's also singularity in being. You're right to say God, our God is one. Amen? Echad in Hebrew. He's one. But it's also right to say, well, he is three in one. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But they're not each other. Do you see the difference in Christian theology? He is single and yet plurality. Islam and other world religions are either one or they're many. They, they're never both because Christianity and only Christianity gives us both equally. So what do I mean when I said, some of you wrote this down, the absolute all-conditioning personality. What do I mean by that? Well, let's talk about absolute to say that God is absolute means that God is self-existent, he's self-sufficient, and he's self-contained. To say that God is absolute, he's self-existent, he's self-sufficient, God doesn't need your counsel, does he? Who can counsel God? You know, Lord, I think you should probably do this with South Africa. As if he thinks that anything we think is intelligent. His mind is exhaustive. And the only time you get things right is because he gives it to you by his grace. Otherwise, left to ourselves, we're going to mess it up. 
But he's self-existent, self-sufficient, and he's self-contained. He is self-existent in that he is not created. No one created God. He is not a product of other gods who created this God and then left. He's not a product of man's rationalism. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient in that he does not need anything created. Angels, man, or heavenly creatures. He doesn't need someone to fill him or supply him with something he couldn't possess apart from them. Does it not bother you sometimes that what Isaiah says that God has declared the end from the beginning? That bothers me. And it bothers me because I can't even fathom what it's like for God to know the very beginning of creation and the very end of creation the end of history, I should say. See, he is also self-contained in that God exists as a trinity completely and fully in himself. See, before everything existed, there was nothing. There was God and only God. To say that God is the all-conditioner, what do I mean by that? Is to say basically that God is the sole source of all understanding. He's the sole source of all understanding, which is what we were talking about a moment ago. What I mean by this is that God is the foundation of knowledge. So in all of our house building projects, we have to begin with him. If we don't have God, we have chaos and we have relativity. If we have chaos and relativity, you know, what's true for you is true for you. It may not be true for you. That type of thinking, it's all over our universities in America. It's ridiculous. Makes me angry. Then I really start preaching. But if we have chaos and relativity, we have what we can call disintegration into darkness. Think of, does not chaos and relativity describe South Africa right now? What's happening in Joburg? And what is the result? What is the fruit of chaos and relativity? Darkness. Death. Destruction. That's all Satan knows. See, if we have nothing but darkness, we are a hopeless race of people. And lastly, God is the absolute all-conditioning personality. Why do we call God a personality? What do we mean by calling that? Well, simply put, God is not an abstract, lifeless being that we just think about. He is a thinking speaking, loving, acting, judging, and feeling person. We are not dealing with space aliens or gods that we create in our own mind, like Rene Descartes. We are dealing with the one person consisting in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I'm bringing all of this theology to you is because our task at discipling the nations consists of teaching men and women and children to obey everything that Christ has commanded. You saw that in the text. This is oftentimes the forgotten part of the commission. However, you should know this isn't a suggestion, nor is it wishful thinking. When Jesus gave this charge, he gave it to us with the intention of seeing to it that it gets accomplished. Okay? And the proof of Christ's intention on actually carrying it out is both his establishment as King and Lord and the sending of his Holy Spirit. 
You see, we're up against some very powerful principalities and powers. We're supposed to, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 5, destroy strongholds and, and, and arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Not just in your mind, but in the minds of politicians, the minds of philosophers, the minds of false religions. Your job is to take command of that. You are to take it, to make it obedient to Christ, which means you need to know your stuff. You need to know it. In other words, we might say hell has gates. Hell has gates, which means that we are on the offensive part of the campaign. Hell is on the run. And I take this to mean that we're supposed to go chasing down all these lofty ideas that purport to be superior to God. We're supposed to chase them down. We're supposed to be after the enemies, to go after the enemies of the gospel, chasing them down, destroying their ideologies and philosophies, and making them captive to Christ. See, we're supposed to have a hand in the footstooling of the nations. And this is for the healing of the nations. But none of this is going to work if we, start, if we don't start with God, the absolute all-conditioning personality. We are men and women made in the image of God. We are persons because God is three persons. We are to reflect him in every area of our lives, in our feeling, how you feel about things, how, what you think about things, and what you do about things. And this means that when we're fighting the good fight, taking down strongholds in places like the university and government agencies and schools of philosophy and so forth. We're doing so based on the all-encompassing authority of Jesus Christ. We don't believe in God because it seemed like the reasonable thing to do. We don't believe in the Creator God because we're bored with all the other gods. Let's try Jehovah. We don't believe in God because he might just be a little more true than the other gods down the street. No, let me tell you something. We believe in God precisely because unless you start with God, you cannot logically justify believing anything else. You see the difference? Unless you start with God, you cannot logically believe in anything else. You can't account for it. It doesn't make sense. So unless God, the triune God, is behind everything that exists, both as we see it and as we interpret it, we simply cannot find meaning in anything. We can't argue for the existence of God without starting with the existence of God. See, there is no reasoning without the God who gives reason. It's absurd. There is no belief without the God who gives faith and belief. It's absurd. There's no possible way to reason yourself to God. You cannot reason without him. See, understanding this presuppositionalism is crucial to the dominion mandate because we are not, we are not brought into a losing battle. Can you please hear me? We are not brought into a losing battle. We weren't redeemed to suffer only loss, and that's it. We have been conscripted into the army of the Lord, and we are on the move. Our great king has established on Zion, has been established on Zion, God's holy hill, and we are now declaring to the world all the faulty thinking will no longer be accepted. We won't accept it. 
We are declaring that humanism and socialism are in direct opposition to the will of God. We are declaring that evolution is in direct opposition to the will of God. We are declaring by faith and on the basis of the authority of God's word that ideologies and movements and philosophies which are not in line with the scriptures are hereby now suitable for destruction. But I must warn each of you here tonight, holding to the authority of the Word of God is very, very dangerous business. It's very dangerous. It can get you killed. Declaring to the nations that their gods are defunct and liable to judgment is very risky business. My country has, by and large, been overrun by humanist thinking, the belief that man is the center of all existence, not God. And we have a movement of sexual deviancy that is hitting the streets. Our lawmakers are continuing to crush individual liberty by making more and more laws that contain more and more restrictions. It's suffocating. Statism, which we're going to get to on Saturday, Lord willing, is our great idol right now. That's our golden calf. We believe the state to be God, and this idol is it's crushing us. But I must say this as I wrap up, that despite the problems in my country, despite the implosion of the Western world, I can say with full confidence that Jesus Christ is on his glorious throne, that he in intends to footstool all the nations, including Zambia, through the preaching of the comprehensive gospel, and guess what? He intends to actually do it. Amen. And the question then becomes this, are you a participant in this grand plan of discipling the nations? Are you? Do you see your job and study as contributing to the social order of the kingdom of God? Are you being diligent with your time and your study? Or are you giving yourself a pass and being lazy for the kingdom? Those are the questions I want you to be thinking about. So I hope your heads aren't aching too much. But if they are, I will have achieved my goal. Let's pray and then we will ask, take some questions. Father God, we give you the glory and the praise tonight. We give you the glory because you are the only one worthy of the glory. No mere man, no mere mortal is worthy of such things. We ask and pray that we would carry out the Great Commission with authority, the authority of Jesus Christ, our King, who we serve. I ask and pray that your Spirit would fill these students, that, that, that your Spirit would guide us, not in just our everyday actions, but in what we think and what we feel. God, we want to reflect you and be about your business, building on your foundation, not our own. So we declare today that God's law is much more preferable to man's law. Man's law leads to chaos and death and deviancy and oppression. It enslaves people. But as we heard earlier, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. So we thank God. We thank you, our great Jehovah that you have established Christ in the heavenly places, and we want nothing more than to serve you. So we ask for that help in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.